Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read the first 10 verses this morning, continue on in our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. Hear the word of the Lord. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do ask that you would break up the stony ground this morning, that you would remove the thorns that so easily entangle the, the seed of God's word as it's planted. We pray, Father, that you would uh, keep Satan far from us to hinder anyone here from hearing what you would have to say in your word. We pray, Lord, that all of us would have fertile ground uh, that could sprout up a seed, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, Lord, to your glory's sake and, and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. On one snowy morning in Chicago, a candidate for the mission field rang the bell at a mission agency at 5 o'clock in the morning to meet with an examiner who was to basically determine whether or not this man was fit and equipped for the mission field. Well, he was ushered into the office by a secretary, and then the man sat for hours, long past his appointment time. Finally, at 8 a.m., three hours later, the retired missionary, the examiner, came in and began to question his candidate. His first question out of his mouth was, can you spell? Rather mystified, the candidate said, yes, sir, I can spell. He said, all right, then spell baker. You mean like the guy that makes the bread? Yes, spell baker. B-A-K-E-R. Okay, that, that's fine. So the examiner continued, now, do you know anything about numbers? He said, well, uh, I know something about numbers. He said, okay, well, please add two plus two. Okay, that, that, that would be four. Okay, good, that's, that's fine. Thank you for coming in. I believe you've passed the examination. I'll be sure to tell the board tomorrow. Well, the next day at the board meeting, the retired missionary gave a report on the candidate to the rest of the members, and, and he said, uh, I give uh, very high marks for this man. Uh, first, I tested him on self-denial. I, I set the appointment for 5 o'clock in the morning, knowing that it was going to snow that morning. He had to get up before the cover of darkness, get out of his warm bed, go and meet at 5 o'clock in the morning. So, testing his self-denial. 
Then I also tested him on promptness. Uh, the secretary let me know that he showed up just before 5 o'clock as he was appointed to be there. Third, I tested him on his patience. I made him wait three hours after the appointment time to see whether or not uh, he would be willing to uh, uh, continue to go along with the program. I also tested him on his temper when he failed to show any sign of anger or aggravation when I made no apologies for being late or anything of the nature. Fifth, I tried his humility by asking him a question that seven-year-olds could answer and again made no explanation for it. I believe this candidate meets all the requirements for the mission field. He will make a fine missionary indeed. As you may know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said that men should be tested first and then be made deacons. Same concept, examination for elders in the church. Um, it's interesting, though, in the Old Testament priesthood, there was no character qualification. There was no written exam, nothing of that nature. They were qualified based upon their lineage. There was no official test of any kind. And as a result, you can imagine the type of men that uh, became priests. Some were very good, some not so much. We have at least four men that you can name by name, Nadab and Abihu and, and Phineas and Hophni, who both, all four of which, uh, were very bad examples of priests and, and paid dearly for it with their lives because they were not qualified. Well, in the, in the previous passage in Hebrews from chapter 4, we had learned something of, of the nature of Jesus as our great high priest. He is a, a great priest. He's a sinless priest, as well as being a sympathetic high priest unto us. But again, the background is some people coming from a Jewish background who had professed faith in Christ are tempted to turn back toward Judaism. They're tempted to turn back toward those human priests because of the persecution that's going on around in the church. And there seems to be some question in their midst of whether or not Jesus was even qualified to serve as a priest, given the fact that he didn't come from the lineage of Aaron. Again, keep in mind, every priest uh, for the last thousands of years had been descended from Aaron. That was the main qualification. So, uh, this morning, what uh, the author of Hebrews is doing, he's sort of giving three necessary qualifications that show that Jesus meets all of these and more in his priesthood that goes well beyond what was required of Aaron. So I want to give you those three qualifications, and then we'll, we'll flesh each one of those out. The first is this. In order to be a high priest of God's people, one has to have an affinity with man. Second, he has to have his appointment by God. And third, he has to have an ability to gain a hearing from God in heaven. Let's start with the first one. The author first speaks of Jesus' affinity with man. In verse 1, he says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. And there's at least two reasons for this affinity requirement. Uh, on the one hand, he would have to represent man before God, and on the other hand, he would have to represent God before men. And so we talked last week about his, his sympathy, being a sympathetic high priest, being able to relate to the nature of man, and, and uh, chapters in the future, we'll talk a little bit more about why Jesus needed to be a man in order to represent the nature of men, in order to represent their needs and the sacrifices that would be needed on their behalf. So there's something that the high priest has to be able to give to God from men. So it has to be a man in that sense. But there's also a sense in which the person who is speaking on God's behalf to men 
also has to be a man in order that regular people would feel welcome to draw near to God. If you think about it, if God himself were constantly in the temple in some sort of physical form, uh, in a theophany of some kind, uh, the people would be scared to death. Uh, every single time we see any manifestation of God, we think about Sinai, the people are pleading, begging with Moses, you speak to God on our behalf, we don't want to, we're scared of him, basically. Same thing goes for angels. Uh, again, God could have just brought an angel and set him up in the tabernacle, just stay there forever, and, and you'll be the priest through which men can come and meet with God. But every time an angel appears in Scripture, in the Old Testament, we see that the men are cowering in fear before them. They do not feel comfortable drawing near to an angel. And so something, there, there's something about the weakness of man. There's something about the nature of man that makes him approachable. And so we see that uh, the high priests were purposely made men. I asked the question in the parenting study uh, on Wednesday night uh, toward the end of the class. I said, well, you know, why is it that God chooses humans to parent children? Why not use angels? And I was trying to get them to see the same point because the kids would be scared to death of angels. Even though we're weak, even though we're sinful as parents, God purposely chooses them to see that they can approach us and thereby also approach God in the same manner because we're drawing near to them in love. An angel can't do that in the same way. And so uh, we saw, if you're reading along with the devotional readings in the book of Job, uh, Job chapter 33, verses 6 and 7, uh, Elihu uh, is one of the friends of Job, one of the last men to speak. He says this to Job, Behold, I stand before God just as you do. I love the way he says it. I, I too was pinched off from a piece of clay like you. Behold, there's no need for you to be terrified of me. My pressure will not be that heavy upon you. In other words, you can listen to me because I'm just like you. Although high priest would have to go through a number of purity rituals to be able to stand in God's place and to speak to men, there's still something about the weakness of man that makes him approachable, that also makes God approachable. Again, if God had come down himself or if he had stationed an angel there, most men, women, and children would be very hesitant to ever come and draw near to God. So he purposely chooses a man. Of course, Jesus fulfills that requirement perfectly when he takes on human flesh. And for a time, he even veils his glory so that men can feel comfortable around him. The few times where it's unveiled, they're scared to death when they're with them. All of a sudden, if you remember when uh, Jesus is, is out in the boats with them and, and he says, well, now, you know, cast your net over this side and Peter's bleak. We fished all day. We haven't caught a thing. And then all of a sudden they do what Jesus says. They catch a ton of fish. Immediately, Peter sees something of the glory of Christ in that power. And what does he say? Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. If we were to stand before God like that, without that glory, with that being veiled, we would be afraid, really afraid to meet with God. But Jesus veils his glory while he's with them so that they can see something of how he can be approached by men. It's interesting, uh, if you've ever read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography or any version of it, I have one, it's a two-volume 
uh, book, and it has all these pictures of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's really, uh, I'm baffled by, uh, he, he was just, a, although he was a doctor before becoming a minister, he always dressed the ministerial part. In other words, he always wore his suit and tie everywhere he went, and I mean everywhere. He would go to the beach in his suit and sit in the hot sun dressed completely in his suit and his tie. Everyone else is wearing some sort of bathing suit, but he's just sort of reclining in his suit. And it, it makes you think, well, okay, well, he had this image of, of ministerial, but at the same time, I just can't imagine Jesus doing the same thing. Jesus dressed like his disciples did so that they could feel comfortable coming near him in order that they could draw near to God. Again, he's, he's the type of man you'd go fishing with. Can you imagine Jesus wearing a suit and tie while he's fishing? <laughs> no. I mean, he's going to wear the same garments that they did. And so Peter realizes this and, and is able to draw near to God because of it. So there's something about the affinity of man that's needed in order to be a good high priest. But then second, and, and this is very important, and he's going to point this out again and again, he needs to be appointed by God. There are no self-appointed priests in Scripture. Uh, verse 1, he states that every high priest is chosen and appointed by God to act on behalf of men. Verse 4 says the same thing. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And then toward the end, he also says he has to be designated by God. He keeps saying it again and again and again. It's not something, there is no self-proclaimed priest, just as there's no self-proclaimed prophet in the Old Testament. They have to be called by God. If you remember, he, he, he paints this picture for us over and over again as well through the narratives. When the Lord calls Aaron to serve as high priest, he commands Moses to gather all the people around him to watch his ordination ceremony, to watch the vast purification ritual that has to take place in order that he can stand in God's place on their behalf. They're all gathered around and seeing him go through all of this water purification and then throwing blood at him over and over again. And then finally he's able to stand there with this really funky hat and really funky vestment. So he looks nothing like anyone else, completely different than everyone. So they know this is a man who stands in our place. You would think that that great event, that unique clothing that he wore would hinder anyone else from ever attempting to call themselves a priest. But you would be wrong. <laughs> it actually happened on a few occasions. Uh, David mentioned one of them in Numbers chapter 16, Korah and 250 men, they're all Levites. Now again, Levites are sort of the next grade down from priest. They're able to carry the, the furniture of the tabernacle, but they're not allowed to touch it themselves. But they can't go into the holy place and minister. They certainly can't go into the most holy place. But Korah, being so close to that, was full of pride and decided, I ought to be able to do what you do, Aaron. I ought to be able to ignore what Moses says. You've gone too far, he says. We ought to be able to do this as well. And so Moses told them that they ought to light their own censers and do what Aaron does to see how it goes. And so he tells each one of them, 250 men, they're to get their censers, to light it, and to bring it before God. And, and as we see that happening, as David said, the the earth immediately opens up and all of Korah's followers are swallowed by an earthquake or by a, uh, the ground just opens up and swallows them whole. 
Whereas the rest of them, immediately fire comes out from God's temple and burns them alive. No man is to take that honor upon himself. Well, the next chapter, the one that we read earlier with, with, uh, when David's reading, number 17, he makes that also plain by making them, each one of the leaders of the 12 tribes, take their staff and put it before God and then come back the next day and see what happens. And, of course, we see uh, the staff of Levi, which is Aaron's staff, begins to bud and to flower. None of the others do. And so, again, they all see this, and then he puts it inside the temple next to the covenant, uh, the Ten Commandments, to keep as a record for all time, saying no one should ever do this unless God has called them to this task. And, of course, even when Aaron is about to die, just to make sure they get this concept, when Aaron is, is told to go up to the mountain and, and God's going to bury him on top of the mountain, before Moses comes down, he takes off all of Aaron's clothing, puts it on Eliezer, and then they walk down together to show this is now God's man. Don't ever take this authority upon yourself. And so from that time on, we don't see a priest or a Levite ever doing this ever again. Only if they're called by God, they've learned their lesson. Uh, you get burned alive, the earth swallows you whole. Let's not do that, right? But for some reason, the kings didn't get this concept. And again, a different type of pride. The king has his own calling from God, his own sense of authority. But now he wants to usurp the authority of the priest. And as you know, King Saul is the first one to do that. Uh, the same thing that happened is sort of that missionary interview where the missionary doesn't show up until three hours later. Well, part of the test that King Saul gets is when Samuel says he's going to be there seven days later, but he doesn't show up on time. What's Saul to do? There's a battle that's about to be fought. He wants God's blessing. Well, I'm not going to wait for the priest. I'm going to take that responsibility myself. I'm going to offer the burnt offering to God. Of course, the second he does that, Samuel shows up and, and tells him, rebukes him, that the kingdom is going to be ripped out of your hands because of your disobedience. And then the Lord promises that he'll get a man after his own heart to be the king and the prince over Israel instead. Similarly, in 2 Kings chapter 26, if you remember King Uzziah, if you haven't read his story, make sure you go read that one today. Uh, his pride went even further than King Saul's uh, because his heart was so lifted up in pride that he sought to enter into the, the temple of the Lord itself and to offer incense on the golden altar of incense. So he's going into the most holy place, doing what only the high priest can do. And as he does it, Azariah, the priest, tries to stop him. And 80 priests come in to try to restrain him from doing this. And he refuses to listen to them, and he goes to touch the golden altar. And immediately, God strikes him with leprosy. And then they... They get him out of the temple as quickly as possible so he's not immediately put to death. Uh, but the rest of his life, we see, he has leprosy on his forehead. And he has to live separately from his family, lives in a separate palace, can never enter the, 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 the house of God ever again. And Jotham, his son, has to govern in his place. The scriptures make it very plain again and again and again. You cannot take this honor upon yourself. I, I explain later why this is so important in terms of today, but just hold that thought that, that no one could take the right of a priest and enter into God's presence 
unless he was appointed by God. So then, the question is raised, why is Jesus claiming to be a priest? Is he honoring himself? That's the question that the writer of Hebrews is seeking to ask. And in verses 5 and 6, he says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's quoting two different scripture verses. One is from Psalm 2, and the other one is from Psalm 110. Both of them are clearly messianic hymns. They, they clearly talk about a future king who's coming and he's going to sit and reign on the throne forever. Psalm 2, he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. In other words, today is the, I've claimed you as my king, you are mine, and you're going to reign forever and ever. Same thing, then he quotes in Psalm 110, speaking of the same king, the same king who's going to reign forever on God's holy throne, he then says to him that he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a very unusual statement that is being made in Psalm 110. This is something that David is, is it's David's psalm, because we haven't heard about Melchizedek in over a thousand years prior to the time that Psalm 110 is written. If you remember from your early biblical history in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek comes up in the narrative Abraham, of Abraham, and it's so brief. All we see is that Abraham, after coming back from a victory, he comes and, and, and has the spoils of war, and this guy named Melchizedek shows up, who is a priest of the Most High God, and this priest offers him wine and bread and blesses him. We don't know a whole lot else about him. And all of a sudden, he just disappears from the scene. We never hear from the guy ever again. A thousand years later, David writes about him and about the order of his priesthood, the order of Melchizedek, as opposed to the order of the Aaronic priesthood, and says that the Messiah will come from his order instead of from Aaron's order. Now, why is this important? Why point out the order of Melchizedek? Well, the difference is this. Melchizedek is not just a priest of the Most High God, but he's also a king. He's the king of Salem. And he's saying, your order won't just be simply like Aaron's, will just be a priest, but he will be a priest and a king. And those two offices will be combined, unlike Saul and Isaiah, who took those offices by their own accord. This man will be appointed both a prophet, a priest, and a king. In fact, three times in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is called great. He's called a great prophet, he's called a great priest, and he's called a great king. He supersedes all of these individual offices, bringing them all together in one person. The Messiah is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. So he, he far supersedes anything that Aaron ever had. And unlike Aaron, who served as a priest only temporarily during his lifetime and then was replaced by another priest, Eliezer, and then Phineas, and then so on, Jesus was sworn to be a priest himself forever. In the same way that he was sworn to be a king forever, he would be a priest forever. So not only does Jesus have an affinity with man, he's appointed by God to serve as priest and to serve forever. Very important to get that concept. And then the third qualification is his ability to gain a hearing in heaven with God. If you go back to verse 1. There we're told that every high priest who was appointed by God had to come before God offering gifts and sacrifices for sin. Why? In order to gain a hearing with God. God's not going to listen 
to any sinner unless he comes with some sort of offering and sacrifice to appease his wrath. Verse 3, the author states that because the priest is beset with weakness, he not only is offering sacrifices and offerings for his people, but he's also offering them for himself because he too needs to have his sin cleansed. But notice the comparison. Look in verse 7 now. Verse 7, he says, Jesus, he doesn't mention anything about Jesus bringing any offering or sacrifice, but rather he's offering instead prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of what? His reverence. If you remember uh, when Jesus is talking about prayer, he says, uh, you think you're going to be heard because of your many words like the pagans. No, other people think they're going to be heard because of the bloody sacrifices that they're offering. In this case, no. Jesus is heard because of his reverence, because of his piety, because of his perfection and obedience. How could a priest gain a hearing with God through his own reverence and piety? He has to be a perfect man. No sinless priest of the line of Aaron could ever come based upon his own reverence because he's not reverent. He's not full of piety. He's blemished. Hebrews 9.14, looking ahead, says the Son of God offers himself without blemish unto God. But why does the author stress then that Jesus loudly and tearfully prays unto God to save him from death? Did you catch that? The gospel writers don't tell us that. The gospel writers tell us that he was mournful as he's praying unto God. But here he's saying he's with loud cries and tears. Jesus is pleading with God to save him from death. On, on a number of occasions, we see him saying, Lord, save me from this hour. Save me from drinking this cup, this cup of wrath. Jesus is praying this for himself. Save me from this hour. Save me from this cup. And Jesus is in utter agony as he's crying this out to God. And yet, he's determined to do nothing but what is pleasing to God. And so he ends these prayers each time by saying, not my will, but yours be done. Now, the author of Hebrews is telling us this, and then he tells us that the Lord heard his prayer. In other words, he answered his prayer. Well, how is that? After all, Jesus did suffer and he did die and he was buried right so how did god answer his prayers then well he saves him from the curse of death by raising him again from the dead on the third day the proof of his priesthood is the fact that god raised him from the dead answering his prayers you see and this is really important because if we're going to trust in a priest we want to trust in one whose prayers are answered who is heard by god you wouldn't want to go to a priest who God doesn't want to listen to because he's not going to help you in any way. So what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus, through the test of his suffering, is gaining a hearing from God by his obedience. So he has to be perfect in obedience, and that, that starts from the time he's born all throughout his adult life, but especially so in those last few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross He's proving his reverence by his obedience to God, even in the midst of his suffering, by his willingness to submit to God, even though he knows that God is not going to answer his prayer the way he wants, it, wants him to at that moment. Now, 
This might sound a little un unusual for us because we think of Jesus as the divine Son of God who's perfect and always obedient. That's true, but humans are not so. Even if you remember in Innocence in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were first created and put into the garden, they had to prove their obedience through that initial test. So Jesus, when he takes flesh upon him and becomes a man, he too has to go through that test of obedience to prove his perfection as a human. Adam and Eve fail. Jesus in another garden is successful. And he proves his perfection. He proves his obedience. And thereby, he proves his reverence, which makes him acceptable to God in hearing his prayers and receiving his sacrifices. And it's Christ's perfection then. And this is really important. It's his, it's his perfection that is the basis of our salvation. That's why Jesus is the source of our salvation, because it has to come through his perfections. It has to come through his righteousness, through his obedience, through his reverence. And then he says, and he does all this, he's the source of salvation, he says, for all who obey him. Now, again, that's a strange way of putting it, but what is the primary command for anyone who hears the gospel? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So he's saying anyone who has believed in Christ, Christ is the source of their salvation because they're not basing it upon themselves, but they're basing it upon his merits. Jesus has definitively gained a hearing for his people by his reverence, by his loud cries and tears, and yet being willing to accept God's will. Again, if you've been reading along in Job, it's the exact opposite, right? Job is faithful in the beginning, but then begins to doubt throughout and begins to wonder, why is God putting me through all of this stuff if I have tried to live a righteous life? Jesus has lived a righteous life. He's lived it perfectly and yet is willing to endure the suffering. Similar again to the missionary in the beginning of the story. He's willing to endure whatever for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the call. Jesus has endured it all in order to grant salvation to his people. Now, I often ask the question, I, I used to do a lot of door-to-door -door evangelism, and we always used EE, evangelism explosion, and so I still have that, those two questions stuck in my mind, but the one question more than any other that I continue to ask people when I'm confronted by someone who, 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 who I, I want to see where they stand with the gospel is always, if you were to die tonight, and you were to stand before God in judgment, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? I love asking that question just because I get so many deer in the headlight looks. Most, most people would be very hesitant to answer that question. They're like, I, 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 does it compute? But some immediately will say something like, well, you know, I, I try to be a good person. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I try to follow the golden rule. I try, I try, I try. Some people, even more proud, will say, I have done all these things. <laughs> and I'm like, this is going to be a while. But for those who say, I try, I say, well, how hard have you tried? Do you think it's good enough to grant access before God's holy throne? Now, if you compare that to any priest who has tried, that priest has to be cleansed numerous times with all this water and all this blood before he can get anywhere near God's presence in the earthly tabernacle. 
what makes us possibly think that we can walk directly up to God in his heavenly temple and say to him, I've tried. It won't cut it. You can never get into heaven. You can never have God listen to your prayers to accept you in any way based upon your sense of trying. The reason why we need a high priest is because we need someone who's not only tried, but done. He's accomplished. He's perfect. And so when we come before the Father, we have to come through a priest. We still need a priest today. But we need a perfect priest who is perfect in obedience, perfect in reverence, so that when God asks that question, all I have to do is say, ask Jesus. Because of Jesus, I have an all-access pass in heaven. Not because of my righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Not because of my sacrifices, but because of the sacrifice of Christ, because he has done it all. The only question that you can really ask yourself in reference to that is not, what have I done to get into heaven? But who do I know? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus the high priest? Perfect in obedience. The one who's approachable. He can relate to us in our weakness. He knows how to minister to ignorant and wayward people. He draws, near, he draws near to us so that we can draw near to God through him. But apart from him, it'd be no different than King Saul or King Uzziah or anyone else trying to go and meet with God. God's going to kill us. We can't stand before holy God. We need Jesus, both as the perfect high priest and as the Lamb of God who offers himself as the sacrifice for sin to take away the sin of the world. In Christ Jesus, we have hope. Apart from him, there is no hope. Do you know Jesus? That's the question you have to answer. If you don't know the answer, come talk to me today. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us, O Lord. We are weak and sinful people. Not a single person in this room can come before a holy God and even dare to say that we've tried our best. We know that that's not the case. We haven't. Even that's a lie. We know it's a lie because we have wanted so many other things other than you and wanted to obey our own desires rather than to obey yours. Even when we think that we're trying to do stuff for you, we're not. Father, have mercy upon a sinful people. Draw near to us through a, a high priest who can relate to us, but who can also relate to you, who can lay his hand on us both and usher us into the very presence of God, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Lord, grant us faith to believe in him. Help us to trust him in our time of need, knowing that he's gone through the same desperate hours that we have, and yet you heard his prayers. Lord, hear our prayers through his, we pray in Jesus' name.